He would rather spend 30 million on the 50 best lawyers in the world to sue UEFA for the next 10 years than accept any punishment for breaching the rules. That's what Manchester City's in-house lawyer Simon Cliff said of the club's chairman Khaldun Al-Mubarak in an email a few years ago. While with Lord Panic on the streets of London, he may now get his chance. You were meant to sing that. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with Lord Panic on the streets of London, he may now get his chance. Because who would have thought this time last week a barrister would have his own banner in a 50,000-seat stadium? So we should thank Lord Panic personally for having such an excellent and pun-worthy name. Yes, well, funnily enough, Lord Panic wasn't the only football law story to pop up last week with news about the Super League and a potential independent regulator of football also in the headlines. So from the business pages to the back pages, the lawyers are definitely now the story. Therefore, on this episode of the podcast, we ask the obvious question, which is, are lawyers going to ruin football? I'm Katrin Griffiths, editor of The Lawyer. I'm Christian Smith, litigation editor of The Lawyer. And also on this episode, next week marks a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which tore up not only the geopolitical consensus, but also the legal one. So we're going to discuss where we're at a year on. What's life like now for lawyers in Ukraine? Who's acting for Russian clients in London? What happened to all those Russian lawyers working at international firms? And what's the status of legal challenges to Russia in international courts? We speak to a lawyer in Kyiv and one in London to find out. And from an Australian jungle to a legal one, former Health Secretary Matt Hancock is off to visit Mishkondorea. We ask, why? And perhaps more importantly, we'll talk about how Hancock isn't the only big name that Mishcon have scooped recently. But first, back to the football. And as we just discussed last week, the lawyer broke the news that Lord Panic is set to defend the Premier League's most successful club of the last decade. Now, I'm joined by the lawyer's international editor and unofficial football correspondent, Alex Taylor. And I think I should say at the outset that the following five to seven minutes of discussion is going to be outrageously biased because Alex is a huge Manchester United fan. And so everything he says should be disregarded. But let's kick off. Alex, Manchester City, what's going on? Well, let me start this five to seven minutes of absolute mudslinging and name-calling by laying the sort of base facts out, shall we? Uh, So it emerged last Monday about 10am in the morning that the Premier League had uh, charged Manchester City with about 100 different um, allegations raging. um, Well, probably the most serious of those uh, had to do with accounting, alleged accounting fraud, it should be said, um, about payments to players, to managers, Essentially, a string of allegations around financial impropriety, uh, really, which I think is probably fair to say. But um, look, got a story, didn't we, about uh, where Manchester City decided to turn its uh, turn to for its defence, didn't we? Yeah, well, Lord Panic KC uh, of well, we were talking about this in the office last week. We couldn't really figure out exactly what he's most famous for. He's been on the in the Supreme Court on the Article Fifty case for Brexit, where on behalf of Gina Miller, he did the proroguing of Parliament case. He did the uh, he's acted for Shamima Begum in the in the Supreme Court. He recently advised Boris Johnson on the Partygate inquiry. He did the Spy Catchers case many decades ago. I mean, he is you know yeah he's been he's he's done some of the biggest stuff in. in in English law in the past you know, number of decades and is essentially, you know, we've asked around a little bit, but I think most people would say 
the best barrister of his generation or really, really up there. It's hard to find too many other names that, that compete in that way. And Manchester City have brought him on for uh, for, for their side to, to defend the claims brought by the Premier League. Um, it's a bit unfair because there's some exceptional other barristers also on there. They've got uh, Paul Harris KC from Moncton Chambers on that side as well. Against them is going to be, for the Premier League, uh, Blackstone Chambers, Adam Lewis KC and Andrew Hunter KC alongside a team of juniors, I'm sure, as well. There's Burden Bird's going to be on for the Premier League and Clifford Chance on for, uh, on for Manchester City. I mean, you can tell a lot by the fact that they've got, I mean, essentially the best lawyers available are going to be on this case. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's, it's kind of trite, but I think if you were to ask any Chambers director if in a in and around Middle Temple, who, given a blank check, they bring in themselves, then most of them probably would point to panic. Yeah, you, I mean, you can see what is at stake for City here and, and why they've hired panic. I mean, I, I resent this idea that you hire a really good barrister or lawyer because you're guilty. I mean, that's obviously just ridiculous. That's not how our legal system works. But clearly the consequences are about as big as they can be for a football club. I mean, they're facing relegation, expulsion. Um, so you can see what what they're going for here. I mean, it, it shows how seriously they take this, despite the fact they, you know, say externally that everything is going to be okay and we haven't done anything wrong. I'm not saying they have done anything wrong, but, you know, they recognise the seriousness of, of what's going on. But mm. the fact of the matter is, this guy doesn't come cheap. Mm. These names don't come cheap. Manchester City will not be looking to go cheap in their defence. I mean, you know, for two years of my own career, I worked at a business called Sport Business Media, where we focused exclusively on media rights. And they dutifully provide me, provided me with some very helpful figures to illustrate this point. And in, 2000, in the 2001-2004 media rights cycle for the Premier League's TV rights around the globe, they brought in about 400 million quid over the course of three seasons. Now, in the current cycle that we're in, that's worth about 3.5 billion quid over the course of three seasons. So if we take that down to even just one season, that's th- about three times the value that you would have got over the entire lifespan of the cycle 20 years ago. I mean, there's huge sums of cash that are flowing into the Premier League now. It's a massively expensive game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what adds to that, I, I, I mean, I mean, that's why you're, you're seeing some of the best lawyers in the country working on this stuff. Because on the other hand, for the Premier League, you know what's at stake for them isn't necessarily a whole bunch of money, but a reputation of being able to actually maintain and enforce rules in football. Yeah. Because I think, as we've talked about previously, AT, um, what's going to happen if they lose this case is they'll be seen as essentially... Fools. Toothless. Um, toothless, exactly. And, and, and so for them, a, a, all, their entire reputation is at stake. It is. It's all a bit weird. I mean, all the language around football talks about grassroots and purity of competition, all the rest of it, and blah, 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 blah. But, I mean, Genie's out of the bottle at this point, and it? Like, Premier League's been making money hand over fist for years and years and years. CVC have got their claws into Barcelona, uh, not Barcelona, sorry, into the La Liga's TV rights. Well, that was like 10% of their TV rights over a period of time, which is, is crazy. I mean, just this morning we were talking about this. Um, three of the Premier League's big six are currently up for sale. So Liverpool, Manchester United and Tottenham Hotspur are all up for sale. Tottenham Hotspur, uh, the FT reported this morning, are the subject of a £3.75 billion bid from a business called MSP Sports Capital Partners. And the interesting quirk of that is that uh, MSP Sports Capital Partners CEO Jeff Murad is also a partner at Morgan Lewis and Bocchius. 
thus further entangling sports and the law <laughs> even more. Uh, if we look at just this Friday coming up, so what will be February the 17th, there's a soft deadline set for Manchester United's uh, first round bidders. Nothing particularly strenuous, I think, there. Just a couple of paragraphs on what they're going to do. But there, you know, Manchester United are already being advised by Latham and Watkins. Latham and Watkins also won a role in the £4.25 billion sale of Chelsea FC earlier in the year. These are huge names in big law, also entwined in the biggest deals within sports. It's a fascinating sort of blend of these two worlds that's developing. So the question then is, are lawyers going to ruin football? Because... You know, I mean, you look at the Premier League rules, for example, they're 300 pages long. That's just 300 pages of, of law. That's time reading. <laughs> Maybe for you. But but just, just you know, just to, to manage a game, of a, a sport. Um, and then you, you've also got everything else. Now, the question, yeah, the question is, are lawyers kind of overcomplicating the situation? Or is this just the result of billions and billions and billions of pounds worth of money? And when that happens with any industry... Therefore, the result is that lawyers are going to be more involved because people want to fight tooth and nail over everything. 100%. I mean, if they're going to be kicking lumps out of each other on the pitch, they're going to be kicking lumps out of each other in the boardroom or in the courtroom. It's it's big business now, and big business attracts big names and big law. And I think what's really interesting, which you know, I think lawyers themselves will secretly like, is that football in particular, and there are other sports like Formula One where this happens a little bit as well, but in particular because of the money, football is now not just fought on the pitch. Nah. Or in trading players, it is fought in arbitrations. It is fought in the law. Big names of you know, big name lawyers have been on cases for, for years. But I think what you're seeing now is the fans and the general public really starting to pay attention to who lawyers are on cases like this. And that's that's the reason why the story made basically every national in the country, um, because people are now actually thinking, oh. That's the lawyer on that. That's really interesting. I've heard of that lawyer. And I think you're just going to see more and more of this as time goes on. So before Alex gets any more time to uh, slag off Man City, I will uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Well, let's leave football behind because Mishkondorea will next week host an in-conversation discussion with the former health secretary, Matt Hancock, for its staff, along with a Q&A afterwards. And at least he doesn't have to pretend to give most of his fee for charity because he's <laughs> appearing for free, according to Mishkon which means that someone at the firm is a mate of his or that Hancock thinks it's a great opportunity to flog his books to lawyers. But actually, Christian, this is not the big Mishcon story this week. Yeah, what else have they been up to? They've only gone and hired the former boss of another law firm, Christian. No, stop it. Not not Matthew Layton from Clifford Chance. He, he only just turned up at FTI Consulting. It's Neville Eisenberg, who is late of BCLP. And this is very, very cute because... Many listeners might associate BCLP, which is the merger between BLP and Brian Cave, uh, with a transatlantic firm where two plus two makes three. Uh, but for a good decade and a half, BLP was a proper trailblazer. It won Law Firm of the Year at the Lawyer Awards twice. It was a silver circle firm. It had punchy and high quality domestic business, uh, very focused on corporate and especially real estate. And it was massively, massively profitable. And this was the Eisenberg project. Um, now, it's faltered a bit after the financial crisis. After 2012, 2013, 14, 14, the wheels came off that growth. But Eisenberg was very unusual in being very bold um, because BLP was very much the Mishcon 
icon of the noughties and beyond. So a lot of the features that law firms now take for granted were aggressively being trialled by Eisenberg. So you look at the huge lateral hiring off and out of the Magic Circle, uh, a managed legal services division, opening a low-cost hub in Manchester, a secondment business that became Lawyers on Demand, now LOD, which was later spun out. And I thought I thought Eisenberg was going to be a lifer. I mean, he was he was managing partner for five terms. He was senior partner. He was CEO of the of the BCLP Legal Delivery and Operations arm. I mean, why is he leaving? It's it's quite the statement. Well, I think um, there's a lot of restlessness to be back in the thick of the action, and I think the US side of BCLP, which now very much dominates that transatlantic merger. Should we say doesn't seem culturally very enamoured of fancy innovation, innovation, and and I think uh, probably post merger he probably I'm guessing uh, wasn't totally excited about what BCLP had become and what was offer, offering. Is it unusual for an ex law firm leader to swap firms? It is unusual. It is very, very unusual. But actually, funnily enough, just before Christmas, we reported that Simon Conster, who was the former senior partner of Clyde's, had just joined DACB. Um, so you know, this does, it is starting to happen. So it's, it's kind of an interesting development. And I think certainly with Kevin Gold, who's the uh, the boss of Mishcon and Neville Eisenberg, you know, they're both very, very interesting personalities. And so it will be an either the most imaginative long-term partnership or they will have a huge row about strategy and it will be flounce central or something like that. But, you know, but I think, but, you know, as I, as I mentioned, particularly with the Consta um, move to DACB, there is a wider issue here about how partnerships keep on their senior talent because you don't want them cluttering up the furniture, but often they can only get a new lease of life in new surroundings. Um, and, and actually sort of what managing partners and senior partners do after their terms is really up for grabs now because quite often... They are only really expert at running partnerships. Um, so, you know, quite often magic circle people tend to retreat into city institutions. So everyone that's run Linklaters, you know, has just, re- you know, disappeared into an investment bank, never to be seen again, except for a large check at the end of the of the month. But um, but I think they're also expert in in client management and sort of strategic thinking and so on. So th- there's there's a missed opportunity for firms to really redeploy some of their senior people. And I think particularly with a number of senior and managing partners currently coming to the end of their terms this year and next year, it's going to be top of the agenda for quite a lot of the big city firms. Yeah, and I suppose that with with, uh, with people retiring later and later, it's going to be a question that is asked more and more. That's really interesting. Thank you, Kat. Well, let's move on, because next week marks a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began. While most of the attention was, quite rightly, focused on the fighting and suffering of the Ukrainian people, the legal world was also turned upside down. For decades, London had marketed itself as the jurisdiction of choice for the Russian elite, and that changed essentially within a fortnight. Most firms rushed to shut their Russian outposts. They disavowed themselves of their Russian clients and condemned Putin's actions. And many of them opened their firms and some of them their homes to Ukrainian lawyers. Of course, it was uh, the lawyers in Ukraine who were the most affected in the legal world and and many of whom turned from timesheets to actually war work. So as it's a year on, we wanted to ask, where are we as a legal industry now? 
Well, we'll stick with those lawyers who are in Ukraine to start off with, because earlier in the week I spoke with Daniel Bielak. He is a partner at Kinstella in Kiev, a firm that was formed out of Central and Eastern European offices of Linklaters in 2008. Now, originally from Canada, he has been in Ukraine for more than 30 years and was recently awarded a medal for support to the armed forces of Ukraine by the country's defence minister. And I asked him what life is like now for a lawyer in Ukraine. Yeah, life today is obviously, I mean, we're, we're into a new normal that's not normal at all. Um, it's certainly uh, better, if that's the right word, uh, than what it was at the beginning of the war when it was just a shock to the senses. I, I'd say about a third of our, of our people are abroad, a third are uh, somewhere else in Ukraine, and a third are in Kiev. Uh, we started seeing people coming back after the initial wave and shock, and and certainly after uh, we defeated uh, the Russian army around um, uh, around Kiev. This war has really been about total resistance. Um, it's not just the army fighting an, an enemy; it's about everybody. You're either on the front or you're working for the front, and uh, so there are people like myself who join the the territorial defense forces. We have. Uh, three lawyers on the front line serving in the in the armed forces um, in different places. But we have a, a lot of people uh, in Ukraine and outside Ukraine who are doing humanitarian work, who are working as volunteers. Um, they are providing supplies and, uh, and medicines and foodstuffs and things like that. So, I mean, you know, being a lawyer in Ukraine today means that you you're uh, uh, corporate social responsibility is, is sort of now the, the dominant feature of your practice, if you like. That's really interesting. The next thing I was going to ask you really was in terms of the actual sort of work that you're doing. Because I mean, you, you normally, you know, pre-February last year were advising big businesses on energy and agribusiness and infrastructure and that sort of thing. I think we're now in a situation where we've managed to restructure our business. We're now war resilient. Uh, and we're looking to, you know, continue working with our clients. As I said, a lot of it is pro bono, but some of that pro bono work is turning into billable work. Uh, as the client progresses, you know, you help them clear customs for humanitarian work. You know, a lot of our clients just just double down on, uh, you know, helping their people, obviously, but double down on the humanitarian side. They felt that as good corporate citizens in in this country, they 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 had a responsibility to help, and so we were working with them on that. Nobody's charging for that, but you know, it builds relationship, it builds a partnership. You know, we we've actually done some M and A uh, deals in the in the IT and tech sector. Uh, those are easier to do because the primary assets are are people's brains. Um, uh, we're actually involved in a major telecoms transaction right now that you'll hopefully hear about in the, in the next uh, few weeks. Um, you know, that's very exciting. And that's a sign that the market is has made a decision that Ukraine is staying. Ukraine is resolute. Ukraine is going to uh, win this war. And people are starting to position themselves. I just got back from Washington. Um, and I, for the first time, I've, I've been, I was getting a lot of input, a lot of in, interesting uh, uh, input and inquiries from U.S. Uh, uh, clients and U.S. law firms with clients saying their clients are asking what's going on, what's happening, etc. Because people are anticipating um, a, a wellspring of funding to, to rebuild the country, which I, I think is going to happen. Do you think it's, it's a natural aspect of lawyers than that they are quite 
you know, ingenious, quite adaptable. And then that way it makes them very, very useful in situations like this to respond to what's going on. I can tell you that from my own experience as a soldier, I find that lawyers are less than adequate as soldiers. I'm, I'm, I am don't consider myself a very good soldier at all because we overanalyze. You have to make quick decisions. You've got to be very practical, logistical, et cetera. And you can't weigh the pros and weigh the cons. So I basically just do what I'm told. But I, wait, I, I wait. think that I think that in terms of, you know, in terms of marshalling resources for humanitarian and volunteer works, I think the, the lawyers and the legal profession in, in general are very good at that because that's what we do. We project manage. If you're if you're doing an M&A deal or a or a major transaction, you you're you're managing a very complicated set of uh, of issues and trying to get to a result. I, it's it, you know it's a sort of a call to action that I have for the legal profession in general uh, um, internationally is that you know as lawyers we should be primarily concerned about justice. Even if, if we're commercial lawyers, you're still trying to get do the right thing for your client and get the right legal result. And 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 there is a huge demand for justice in this country now, and there should be internationally. I mean, we're dealing with a terrorist, a genocidal terrorist state uh, that should be a pariah. I mean, the, the fact that there's still members of the international financial uh, community and and and, uh, and 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 energy wise is 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 appalling. What do you make of lawyers, say, in the UK or in the US or the EU who are now or are still acting for Russian-linked clients, whether that be state-linked clients or just, just Russian clients in general? They're, they're abetting terrorism and genocide. I mean, they are, they are, they are basically facilitating uh, the, the, the genocide of a people. Um, they're, they're, it, is, it is absolutely reprehensible for anybody to be representing uh, uh, Russian clients, especially Russian state clients, under these, under these circumstances. That's blood money. That was Daniel Bielak from Kinstella in Kyiv. You know, Dan raised a really interesting point at the end there, because last year we saw this extraordinary rush to ditch Russian clients on the part of uh, the big law firms, uh, obviously because so many of them were sanctioned. But where are we now? Yeah, I mean... I think the first thing to say would be that we haven't moved on that much from where we were then. I mean, lots of law firms rush to ditch their Russian clients. I mean, for example, Freshfields quite um, dramatically dropped VTB, which is, you know, the, the majority state-owned Russian bank. Um, they're still not acting for them at all. We haven't seen too many firms pick up Russian clients. There's definitely been some. A lot of them haven't been shouting about it. Um, we, we have seen some firms pick pick them up in limited respect. So, for example, McFarlane's has come onto the record for VTB Europe in the big tuna bonds case. Now, that's an interesting situation because I won't go into too much detail because it'll take too long, but essentially VTB Europe has been ring-fenced from the Moscow parent by the German regulator. So it's essentially now managed by the German sanctions financial regulator, BaFin. So the argument could be made that actually it is no longer a... A, 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 a Russian uh, entity, but instead a state-managed one. But they've come onto the record for them. There are some other firms like Candy and a few other ones who are acting on, on matters. I, th- I think the question that is going to dominate the coming year is whether or not firms start to slowly go back towards Russian clients. I, I doubt we're going to see many 
big firms do so, but whether or not we increasingly see smaller firms starting to act for uh, for these for these Russian companies, that might be something to watch out for. I have spoken to quite a senior litigator recently who said to me that he he hopes we'll move back towards a situation where where uh, uh, London lawyers are acting for Russian clients because he kind of saw the whole move away from Russians just on the basis that they were Russians as an overreaction and a bit of a populist um, you know, uh, a tsunami. He now would that's, say that, though. Well, well, very, very well. I mean, but that is one opinion that is undoubtedly, mm. and he seemed to think, quite prominent in the market. I agree. No, I've heard that expressed a lot, actually. What's quite interesting as well is that and the government announced new sanctions banning lawyers from doing transactional work for Russian clients in October last year. That was in line as well with what the EU were doing. And what's interesting is that the government has not actually introduced those sanctions yet. They announced them but have not basically drawn them up or, or, or put them through Parliament. The EU has done, so now there's actually a divergence between what the EU is doing and what the UK is doing in that respect. And the, and the UK government, I had contacted them to ask them the latest on this. Um, by the time we recorded this, they hadn't got back to me. Uh, but essentially, my understanding is that nothing has moved on that. There's indications, aren't there, that uh, some, you know, the, the way that FABs have re- responded to uh, to the Ukraine invasion, uh, they divest themselves of their Moscow offices. Many of those firms are now fully independent of their kind of UK or US parent. But equally, there are a number of those lawyers, those Moscow-based lawyers, um, who actually moved to the Middle East. Um, and we've been tracking some of those for a forthcoming um, piece that we're doing. So I think there's an awful lot still to unpack about how firms have divested them because there were numerous ways that were uh, sort of available to them. Um, Obviously, one would hope all keeping within the spirit and the letter of the rules. Well, there are a growing number of proceedings involving the war itself, which are being brought by Ukraine or Ukrainians against Russia. Jonathan Gimblet is a former British diplomat and is now a partner at Covington's London office and was in the Hot 100 this year, in fact, at the lawyer. Um, And he's one of the lawyers leading the charge for Ukraine in the international courts. Now, Christian spoke to him earlier and told the lawyer about the status of the cases against Russia. So, Jonathan, you filed the initial case uh, in the International Court of Justice on behalf of Ukraine against Russia at the start of the war. Tell us about how that went. We've been following very closely the 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 news about Russia's military buildup uh, in advance of the 24th of February. Um, it, it was still, however, a bit of a shock to everyone when on the 24th we woke up to the news that Russian forces had crossed the border in numerous places. We immediately started thinking, now that this has happened, now that there's been this speech by Putin explaining the thinking behind it, you know, what are um, Ukraine's options here under international law? And it was very striking uh, in that speech that President Putin referred to the justification for the action being to protect um, Russian speakers in Donbass from a genocide, uh, which clearly he was attributing to Ukraine. And that was the germ of the idea that you can't um, abuse the genocide convention in that way by throwing out obviously spurious allegations of genocide and then using those allegations uh, as a basis for intervening militarily in the affairs of your of a, a neighboring sovereign state and that's that's very much the core thesis of the case that we brought we um 
we had it filed within a couple of days, which is um, uh, probably a, a world record for one of these cases. And uh, we were very pleased to get preliminary um, provisional measures uh, indicated by the court um, a few weeks later, ordering Russia to suspend its military activities in Ukraine. In that case, the, the substantive aspect of that case, as I understand it, is is still ongoing. Um, what what other litigation is going on at the moment? I know that you're involved in some other stuff. Other firms and other lawyers are involved in other stuff that's being brought by Ukraine against Russia or by individuals against Russia. What can you tell us about that? Well, there's certainly a lot going on in the European Court of Human Rights. Um, Ukraine has filed a uh, an interstate application against Russia. Uh, in relation to all of the damage and violations of human rights that are occurring in the course of this uh, invasion. Um, other uh, uh, cases are being filed on behalf of individuals. We've done some of those applications ourselves, uh, and I'm sure that there are many other applications out there that wouldn't necessarily all be public. There's uh, still a lot of ongoing uh, litigation relating to the earlier abuse uh, violations of international law by Russia. So, um, and then of course you've got the whole criminal side of things, which isn't necessarily one that um, law firms uh, get heavily involved in, but the ICC is very active looking at the war crimes that are occurring and lining up, um, uh, well, investigating potential prosecutions uh, in connection with that. That was Jonathan Gimblet from Covington. And that is all we have time for on this episode of The Lawyer Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at podcastatthelawyer.com and of course you can find out more about everything we've been discussing at thelawyer.com. We'll be back again in a fortnight, but until then, goodbye. goodbye.